Welcome to season two of Deconstructing the Myth, a podcast for those deconstructing American evangelical Christianity. This season, I, Elizabeth Mall, and Jenny White will dive into the theology and history behind confusing and controversial Bible passages. We hope to be a resource for you on your journey, no matter where you come from or where you land. Hey, Jenny. Hello. I'm excited to talk about genocide today. What a weird thing to say. I know, but it is. It's a, it's a very interesting topic. It is interesting. So Jenny has a little different mic situation today, so that's why she sounds a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But before we get into genocide, why don't we start with our Bible game? Is it the Bible? Or what is our topic today? Aristotle. Oof, Aristotle. Girl, I feel like I have no idea, so we'll see how this goes, okay. because you're going to be asking me today, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, I kind of feel the pressure. Did you feel this when I asked you? I mean, I kind—I did a little, but it was more like, it's okay. So honestly, <laughs> I hadn't really read much of Aristotle before I, I looked this up, so uh, I'm glad I get to ask you the questions. Okay, okay, good. That makes me feel better. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Here's your first quote. Wishing to be friends is quick work, but friendship is a slow ripening fruit. You know what? I'm feeling like these are all going to be Aristotle or Proverbs, and I have not spent as much time in Proverbs as some other books, so... (sighs) But it's kind of like a couplet sort of situation like Proverbs, so I'm going to go with Bible. It is Aristotle. Oh, I'm feeling it. But I like the way you're working through it. Like, I I enjoy hearing your thought process. (laughs) You ready to try again? I'm ready. Mockers resent correction, so they avoid the wise. I feel like this is Bible because I feel like I've been reading in Psalms lately and they just like to talk about mockers, mockers a lot. Is it the Bible? It is. Proverbs 15, 12. Well done. Next one is fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. The Bible likes to talk about fools, yeah. too. But calm in the end. Well, I haven't guessed Aristotle, so I'm going to guess Aristotle. It's Proverbs. Ugh, okay. <laughs> Proverbs 29.11. Okay. Okay. We have two more to go, so here we go. Okay. Suffering becomes beautiful when anyone bears great calamities with cheerfulness, not through insensibility, but through greatness of mind. I feel like this is a little too fluid for the Bible. Does that make sense? I see where you're coming from. Uh, because Proverbs, like, I think some stuff gets lost in translation sometimes as far as the poeticness mm-hmm. of it. And sometimes, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Aristotle. Correct. Oh, finally. <laughs> is this like the first one? It's your second one. Jeez. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Do you feel ready for your last quote? I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies, for the hardest victory is over self. Hmm, I feel like this has the same vibe as the last one, so I'm going to go with Aristotle. You are correct! Oh, yay! Three out of five. So if this was like a batting average, I would basically be like a pro baseball player. I think so. I don't understand baseball. I don't know, but I'm going to think about it that way. (laughs) 
Okay, so today we are talking about everyone's favorite topic, genocide <laughs> in the Old Testament. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we have a really interesting um, topic and show in store for everyone today. I mm-hmm. have really been intrigued with the idea of genocide in the Old Testament. It was my final uh, paper that I did for a class my last semester of my a master's degree because I don't know it's a tough one it's a tough one to say okay God commanded you to exterminate a people yeah what are we supposed to do with that so I will just give a little bit of the background um, theologically of what's going on in this passage and then yeah we can discuss what is happening here what do we do with this heavy topic so Our passage is Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6, and it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So we see in this passage that there were actually seven nations that Israel was commanded to destroy. Uh, Collectively, they are called the Canaanites because they are in the land of Canaan. But what's controversial about this passage is that Israel is told to put the Canaanites to harem, which is H-E-R-E-M. And it is a word that most English translations translate as total destruction. So they're meant to totally destroy the Canaanites. And it's a pretty grim picture of God that we get from that, if that's what is being said. Um, What exactly did that expression entail? So it's used three ways that we have seen um, in the Bible. It's a punishment for Israelites who turn to idols instead of God, which is seen in Exodus 22.20. It's used in reference to gifts given to priests. They were completely destroyed. Um, like the, the offering, the animal offering. And third, it is used in military context, which we see in this passage in Deuteronomy. So um, there are some interesting aspects to this word because quite literally it means total destruction. Mm-hmm. But we kind of get a confusing picture of that in the Old Testament. For example, in this passage, after they're commanded to put the Canaanites to harem, the Israelites are also immediately prohibited from making covenants with the Canaanites, showing them mercy and intermarrying, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which assumes that not all the Canaanites are actually destroyed. So concerning the word harem, there is some ambiguity about what it meant compared to what its literal translation is. Um, But moving on from that, we still are left with this problem of Israel being commanded to severely harm, if not completely destroy, an entire people group 
And what are we to do with that? Is God pro-genocide? Now, some people will argue you can't call it genocide because it's not based on their ethnicity and, and it's not based on their unique identity. It's based on evil practices they were doing. But I would argue, how does that make it much better? Especially because we know Canaanites did things like offer their children up as sacrifices. So, of course, in the Bible, we see that God is absolutely against that. But it would seem strange that the answer is, okay, so kill all of them. That's interesting. <laughs> Even like I... the, if I could just like say something that I found interesting is that people say, well, it's not genocide or God didn't say that. Even mm. though from, I guess, a plain reading of the text from someone like me who doesn't have the background that you do, it does say the Canaanites, right? Destroyed the Canaanites, which is a people group. Yes. So they would say that it was a but people group, not but the they weren't being destroyed for a people group. Okay. A people group. But when your culture, when your culture is known for sacrificing children, that kind of is going after your culture, right? In a sense. Hmm. So I had not really thought of it that way, but I think you're right. Because if you think about times genocide happens, I can easily see people saying, well, I didn't kill, you know, that person because of their ethnicity, because they're part of that group, but because that group is known to do terrible things. And where's the line, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that those who went out to destroy all the Jewish people absolutely would have said, well, yeah, they're Jewish, therefore they are evil and trying to destroy us. Yeah, yes. And I think, you know, it's kind of interesting to try and think of how to classify it. I've heard a lot of scholars call it Old Testament violence as opposed to genocide because of that. But honestly, whether or not we mm -hmm. classify it as genocide, it's still it, a Yeah, that really doesn't change. Passage. It doesn't really, that, that's, a, that's just changing the wording a little bit, but it doesn't really change what's going on. Yeah. And so uh, getting into what is the problem, <laughs> to break it down, um, Charlie Trim presented four propositions I thought were kind of helpful in thinking about this. And these are propositions related to God and related to the Bible. So this is coming from a Christian perspective, but it's helpful for anyone, I think, when unpacking this. So the first proposition is that God is good and compassionate. Mm -hmm. The second is that the Old Testament is a faithful record of God's dealing with humanity and it favorably portrays God's actions. The third proposition is the Old Testament describes events that are similar mm -hmm. to genocide. And the fourth is that mass killings are always evil. So Charlie Trim would say these propositions cannot all be mm -hmm. true at the same time. Because if mass killings are always evil, then one of the other three has to be mm -hmm. incorrect. Or um, mass killings are not always evil. Yeah. So then Charlie Trim presents, you know, th the reasonable possibilities. So God is either not actually good. The Old Testament is an unfaithful record of historical events. The Old Testament does not actually record anything mm -hmm. like genocide or the mass killing of the Canaanites was permitted in this unique mm -hmm. instance. So that's one proposal of how to think about the moral problems presented here. And so a lot of Christians would say, okay, the mass killing is permitted mm -hmm. in this unique instance, which I will say, you know, it is easy to say no one should ever kill mm -hmm. another human being. And yet when countries threaten each other, this is not like something that's no. gone. This is how, you know, people 
maybe mm-hmm. against warfare absolutely but what if someone's coming to kill you and your family are you against self you know how how yeah. does that all play out so it's it's not i don't know it's it's, it's not it's not as simple no right it's not a simple answer and and some other people have some options mm-hmm. of what might have been happening here so paul in anderson said he adds these possibilities i should say so he says potentially god mm-hmm. is being vindictive um god is god commanded the Canaanites to be killed because of their mm-hmm. sinfulness which we kind of addressed before um he said the principle of non-resistance that jesus preached was trumped by the reality of a cruel world hmm. in the old testament mm-hmm. which was an interesting option um god is a violent deity um Mm -hmm. that's another possibility and then he also mentioned what i think is very fascinating the possibility that there was a different stage or dispensation Mm -hmm. of god's law in the old testament that is replaced in the new testament and i had talked about this in last season um a redemptive movement hermeneutic is this idea that god is giving commands that are able to that are are meant to enable the people that are following him in their cultural context to not collapse in any way to not collapse um, spiritually economically hmm. culturally so the law that is given is a working law it's a law to keep the machine moving of civilization of the people but it is not the perfect law that is found in christ yeah we mentioned that in last season more in regards to kind of the rules um in the old testament that seem to demean women and seem to you know be cruel but the idea was if if that was all completely done away with would that um civilization would that group of Mm -hmm. people the israelites have collapsed economically you know so it's kind of just an interesting thought experiment but even if that Mm -hmm. is the case is killing an entire people group right permitted you know in that i don't know what are your thoughts on that yeah i think on the face of it i do have trouble with that idea that God would kind of set up a system and put it in motion to where he, in a sense, was forced to put these stepping stones in place that caused so much destruction along the way, only to have them abolished in the New Testament, where I don't see that in the New Testament. That's just that's just me just not knowing much about it or not knowing the evidence for it. So I could change my mind, certainly, but I don't see where Jesus... I mean, he came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. Hmm. He didn't say anything to my understanding of, well, that was all that was then. And now this is a new iteration of, of God with us. Not anything that would kind of make me think that those rules were just, you know, to keep society from falling apart. Like that seems like a pretty weak argument that, well, we can't just say what God would really want because then, you know, your civilization would fall apart. Like he, he took Abraham from nothing and built a nation. It doesn't seem that he needs to worry so much about that. Hmm, That is an interesting point. I, I don't know. I do feel like I see this trajectory personally when I read the new Testament. So the example that's coming to mind is the woman caught in adultery which I do know that that passage is somewhat controversial as Mm -hmm. to if it's original or not. Um, But it is kind of characteristic of Mm -hmm. how we see Mm -hmm. Jesus Mm -hmm. treating people. So a woman caught in adultery by the law was Mm -hmm. meant to be stoned, and yet he doesn't do it. So in this hermeneutic, the idea is, you Mm -hmm. know, in the past, that's how we dealt with it. 
Um, that's not the ideal, but that was part of the process in the past, I suppose. I just have a clarifying question that uh, shows my ignorance in this, but I may not be the only one. So the law, there, there's a, a lot of rules in this law, but God didn't write, he wrote the Ten Commandments and gave them Ten Commandments, but then this law built up around that in some way, right? But it wasn't like God necessarily said, I think if someone's caught in adultery, they're put to death. Or how does that work? Like, is that the Israelites coming up with this? Because God didn't say, like he he did like he would say, "Thou shalt not commit murder." That was that was that predated this, right or not? Like that's where I don't I don't know. Um, so looking in Exodus twenty, after the Ten Commandments. God, let me look at this again. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this. And then it starts in on um, the law in chapter 21. So it is being attributed to God giving those rules. So I don't know if that was kind of a Jewish, um, like the Jews taking liberty and saying, well, God said these things when really it was God influencing our thought on law. I don't know how that all works that gets into inerrancy and everything but as far as the redemptive movement hermeneutic it's an interesting idea an interesting theory well it may not hold water i definitely nathaniel last uh, season thought it did not hold water at all (laughs) but i found it to be a unique a unique theory so um anyway so going back to the canaanites um Mm -hmm. being put to death for their sinfulness uh so god definitely says in Deuteronomy 12:31 that mm-hmm. child sacrifice is detestable. But like I said before, it makes little sense that as a result mm-hmm. God says exterminate the entire group because <laughs> they're right. already exterminating their own people. Um and it does raise tension because yes. it's yes. so opposite of what we see Jesus doing in the New Testament and his treatment. Um so One alternate answer, I explored this in my paper. I don't know where I would land on all of this, but is this idea that Israel did hear from God, but what is recorded may not be God's actual intent, which I know Jenny's (laughs) not going to be on board with this, but just hear me out for a second. Brian Zan says the Old Testament is inspired telling of the story of Israel coming to know their God, but it's a process. God doesn't mutate. But Israel's revelation and understanding of God obviously does. Along the way, assumptions are made. One of these assumptions was that Yahweh shares certain violent attributes with the pagan deities of the ancient Near East. So the idea is that the Israelites progressively understood God's will and his voice. And the Old Testament account that we read here is a snapshot Mm -hmm. of a moment in that progression. It shows what Israel believed God wanted from them at Mm -hmm. that point in history based on their knowledge of God that they had at the time. But when Jesus comes on the scene later, he shows far more clearly what the true will of God was. And all Old Testament passages must be held up to the life and works of Jesus to determine their ethical and moral quality. This is just like a, this is what I came up with in my paper. I thought, well, and it was based on some of these, um, some of these other people's thoughts on it. And like I said, I don't know where I would stand today exactly on it. Um, but the thing that's appealing to it mm-hmm. for me is that it ties up so many of the loose ends that the passage contains. Um, God is not actually responsible right. for an evil 
command. But we also don't have to jump through all these literary hoops to try and make harem mean something it doesn't. Um, but of course, this sort of in, this sort of interpretation comes at the expense of inerrancy. I mean, I don't know that it does really. I actually no. I, I think that there is a. I I like that theory actually. As a theory, I think it does make sense. It makes sense to me that Israel is learning about God and they didn't get everything. We know they didn't get everything right, of course. And they definitely did take uh, the religions that were around them. And I think they did attribute some of those things to God based on their understanding and that sort of thing. So I don't think that's unreasonable at all. So, and I also don't think if that's just a recording of what happened, that doesn't call into question errancy in that sense that but the the recorded yeah. command maybe oh, okay that's the recorded at, right? command that's where the tension is. yes so the, there is says do this mm-hmm. yeah what do you think of that yeah i just there are so many things in the bible that are not clear at all when you really look at them and that's that is my go-to <laughs> things that i don't know if that's i mean you're saying the word meant something else and there are there are a few theories that I have that make a lot more sense to me that actually kind of fall into this is that okay this is what's recorded but that isn't what it meant at all and based on other historic documents from the time period people didn't didn't record the way we think of like a factual journalistic take on things is not how people recorded what what took place in their history even when they are from their perspective they're being factual Okay, tell us about that. Do you, well, I can just I in this sense I can I can jump in a little bit if you want just this one this one tidbit. Yes. So please do. this I got from a Bible Project, which is a nonprofit animation studio that produces short form, fully animated videos to make the biblical story accessible, and they're committed to understanding the Bible in its historical context. So that makes mm. me really kind of like how they're describing things, and so and they're talking about the destruction of the Canaanites, uh, uh, they mentioned that conquest accounts use extreme battle language to describe what Israel was doing in Canaan. Uh, and not only okay. Israel, but battle language throughout that, that time. So readers will come across phrases kind of like we were saying that, you know, quote, nothing was left alive that breathes or totally destroyed, mm-hmm. left no survivor, which is kind of what you were saying. That's what that word means. Yeah. Uh, was it her- uh, can you say it again? Haram. It's like, that is the interpretation of the word and that's not wrong we don't have to debate that and so this vivid language makes it seem like what god is telling them to do goes way beyond what one might think of as normal even for warfare Mm. um but just because the text says those things it doesn't mean that you're taking literally and so we have to remember these books weren't written in the modern style of history so the key to understanding them really lies in context and i don't want to just say well that means that you can't read anything on its face because i, I mm-hmm. there's like there's this struggle if you have to hold both in one hand on one hand context is so important and on the other hand mm-hmm. we do value what the bible says and thinks it, it can teach us things so it has to make sense in some context yeah so uh, there are three different ways that this can kind of be explained which is like idiom exaggeration and rhetoric and mm-hmm. battle idioms really speaks to what you were just saying what i was talking about so Ancient yeah. cultures had literary idioms, figurative language, 
that says one thing that means another, just like we do now. And so an example is it's raining cats and dogs. You wouldn't be like, oh my goodness, there are actually animals falling from the sky, right? You don't understand it that way. But you also wouldn't think I was lying if I called you on the phone and said, oh my gosh, Elizabeth, it's raining cats and dogs. You wouldn't think, "Uh, she's lying. She's not being literal. That's not what you would Mm -hmm. assume. It just means it's raining really hard. So, or to take the words literally at, in that sense, that's to misread them. If you just say total destruction and we mean it exactly as, total destruction that could actually be a misnomer that's really interesting because a lot of people put that expectation on the bible yes it disregards genre genre is maybe not even the right word but it disregards ancient literary mechanisms of Mm -hmm. how they spoke which makes us actually not able to take it as literally as it needs to be taken do you know what i mean yes it's almost like too zoomed in it's on the too, exact word yes. at times. It's too zoomed yeah. in. So what I love, like, there's an example of this. So an ancient battle idiom. So in, in Second Kings, which tells the story of the Assyrian invasion of Israel, which was turned back after miraculous defeat during the siege of Jerusalem. So uh, that was recorded in the Bible that it was they were turned back. But archaeology has discovered that the Assyrian king went home and he told a very different story to his people. He says that he, quote, shut up Jerusalem like a caged bird. So this is kind of like an, an ancient public relations management in the form of like a well-known idiom <laughs> for a siege. Like, yeah. you know, oh yeah, I showed up like a bird. They were under siege. And so Joshua mm. also uses those idioms um, like when he's writing his battle narratives. Um, so we have to say that this isn't, this isn't just like, well, you could read the Bible and you interpret it this way. It sounds a lot better, but we can say, no, during this time, this is how people recorded what happened. So I think that's something that we need to keep in mind as we're thinking about all of this. And not holding them to like the standard of, I don't want to say standard, but maybe the style of journalism that we the often style, see now. Yes. Now we have a very literal style of journalistic integrity where mm-hmm. it has to be absolutely the fact or we would not consider that source reliable, but that mm-hmm. isn't the case. And that doesn't mean that they were lying or not telling the truth. It just means they had a totally different paradigm of how they looked at this sort of thing. Wow. Thank you for pointing that out. You know, and I, that reminded me, um, the other thing that the Bible often does is it, it gives a, how was this? I I read this in a book by, um, what is his name? Jonathan Moreau. Mm. And he said, the Bible is accurate, but it's not always precise. Which I think is really interesting. And so he also, speaking of him, he had an interesting quote about what might have been going on. He said, the Bible likely contains rhetorical generalization Mm -hmm. in ancient Near Eastern war language. Mm -hmm. Kind of what you were saying. There is good reason to believe the targets in this passage were key military centers Mm -hmm. and that most of the women and children would have fled. Mm -hmm. The war language of the text may exaggerate the utter destruction of all things that breathe. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of helpful in thinking, okay, this is a war zone like this. There was ample time for people, for the vulnerable citizens to leave. Um, Mm -hmm. And what's being commanded is an actual sort of war instead of an unjust sort of destroy everyone, even the ones who cannot you know, arguably be called to battle. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know. That was kind of an interesting thought, but we cannot prove that, you know, that's, that's kind of a speculation on what was going on 
Um, so there's just a lot. This is a hard topic. <laughs> this yeah. is just a hard topic in general because it's, um, it's like, do we make, is, is God, is God a monster? Is, is, you know, the Bible inaccurate? How do we deal with it? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just going to read my conclusion that I wrote for the, for the paper that I had submitted. Again, I don't know where I stand on this now. Sure. Um, but I, I'd love your thoughts on this. I said, when the traditional understanding of inerrancy is not a limiter, the more reasonable explanation emerges. Israel was indeed encountering God in the Old Testament, but was also projecting their own perspectives in some instances where they recorded that they heard God's voice. Mm. Discovering where these particular instances occurred can be accomplished by comparing them to the character of God described across the whole of Scripture particularly compared against the teachings of Jesus, who clarifies God's true intent as well as his perfect law. In the case of Old Testament genocide, such a mandate does not line up with the character of God we see portrayed throughout the whole of Scripture. So there is a good chance these particular commands were a human projection rather than a divine mandate. As Anderson asserts, when a book in the canon says that God commanded something we would otherwise regard as a heinous crime, we should treat the concept of the purported command as a defeater for the claim that God was the author of that command. So what are your thoughts on all of this? And what else did you find concerning all of this? Sure. Yeah. So your conclusion, I think it's very, it's, it's strong. I don't think I would land there exactly, but it makes a lot of sense. So I really, I agree with the case that we really need to interpret all of scripture through the character of God that's revealed in Jesus as a, a human come to earth, who I believe is, is God in the flesh. So this is God and we have recordings of his words, not just recordings of what people say that he said in that sense. So I think that is really helpful. And those things can also be misconstrued, but it's a little bit clearer. And if we look through that lens, we yeah i don't jesus is not condoning genocide i don't believe it. so where kind of where does that leave us israel is rejecting their own perspectives and i do kind of wonder that also makes that feels a little bit hard it's a little bit of a of a hard pill to swallow just because it makes everything feel very hard to grasp i'm not sure how to describe it exactly i don't have a great response well, it's tricky being, because we are both still Christian. Yes. And of course, the atheist at this point could be like, well, see, you know, it's, it's, I, we, we have a Christian bias and I, we yeah. don't want that to be a secret or anything. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at it through, I want to interpret this through the person of Jesus. And I do think his highest ethic is love. And that's kind of where what I found so I talked about there are kind of the, these three conventions that I think are important to to remember. If I can just, I'll just cover them now, if you don't mind. So we, yeah. we covered idiom, which yeah. is raining cats and dogs. Well, when it says kill every living thing, it's an idiom. Uh, so another one, the second one is exaggeration and then rhetoric. So for exaggeration, as modern people, we expect a level of journalistic accuracy, which is kind of what we just talked about when it comes to historical accounts, but ancient cultures had a totally different understanding. In ancient battle narratives, the exploits of the protagonists are often inflated for literary effect. So this is common. So in one ancient Egyptian tablet, there is a pharaoh who boasted of his military exploits with the line, Israel is laid waste and his seed is not. That's from about 1200 BCE. Well, 
we know that's not true. And they were recording this as this is, this is what happened. And so it's hyperbolic trash talk is one way of putting it. So <laughs> the book yeah. of Joshua observes the same conventions of exaggeration when it describes the scope and intensity of conquest. So again, here's another example. There's this exaggeration that is very common and accepted. The third one is the rhetorical bravado. Rhetoric often employs figurative language and conforms to the conventions of a literary tradition. So in this case, the conventions of ancient warfare narratives are observed. Rhetoric is meant to be persuasive. It has an agenda and a story to tell. So I, I'm sure you, I think you may, you probably have the book Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copen. Um, we actually used to have it. I okay, don't. We used to have it. What? Yes, I've heard a lot about I it. I gave it to a thrift store because I was like, I'm not interested in this. So I donated it. Now I'm like searching my shelves trying to find it. <laughs> I needed that. I need that book. Um, that's <laughs> it. The moral of the story is never get rid of any book. But um, never, never. Ever. His quote is that Joshua used the rhetorical bravado language of his day, asserting that all the land was captured, all the kings defeated, and all the Canaanites destroyed. And so the point of all this rhetoric was to mm. assert God's total supremacy over the Canaanite idols. However, Joshua didn't believe all the Canaanites mm. were destroyed. And it kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning, where it says, destroy all the Canaanites. And then it says, don't marry with them. Don't worship their idols. Yeah. To me, that like... makes way more sense that there's this, there's this rhetorical bravado. So mm. that I found very convincing. If you take all these things, is that there's some bravado, there's exaggeration, and there are idioms, which means that, yeah, I think God did send the Israelites out to tear down the the false the temples of the false gods to stop the sacrifice the very dangerous things that were going on the temple prostitution etc but that may not have even meant at all kill every last woman and child and so to mm. me that kind of clears up any idea of did God tell them to commit genocide well no he did tell them to go out and go to war yes and so that even, you could even say, well, that's not loving. And that's almost a little bit of a different, more theological discussion. But as far as this idea that God was just like, just kill everybody and destroy everything, it is reasonable to look at that account and say, this is written, it, it's not a poetry book, so it's written to be history. But in that, when the in the time when it was written, you're going to have these idioms. You're going to have these exaggerations. And so we don't have to take it as everyone was wiped out, especially because as Joshua mentioned, well, their Canaanites are still there. They're still in the land. They weren't, obviously they weren't totally wiped out because Israel kept having trouble being kind of sucked into that pagan religion. So that's kind of where I land and what I think is probably closest to the truth. So we kind of went in reverse order this week from last week as far as starting with the theological implications of this passage. But I was hoping you could paint a fuller picture of who these people actually were historically, starting with where were they? Where did they exist geographically? I actually had to bring, I brought up a map. I always have maps in my notes because I am also so directionally challenged that I kind of need to look at something to understand at <laughs> all. <laughs> but historically, the land of Canaan has been described in various ways, sometimes to an area encompassing all of Palestine and Syria. Sometimes it's only the land to the west of the Jordan River, and sometimes it's just a strip of coastal land northward. But it always centers on Palestine. So I, I actually didn't know that. So when you hear about Canaan, 
It's yeah. always centered on, it always includes Palestine. Okay. Biblically, the Canaanites are identified in Genesis as descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham, the grandson of Noah. And I don't know, that whole thing actually is very interesting, but that's like that's like a, a whole different discussion. A whole nother twisted situation. That's a whole other twisted <laughs> right? situation, which is not, this is not about genocide, so we're just going to talk about Canaan. Um, <laughs> yeah. I know, the Israelites occupied and conquered Palestine or Canaan beginning uh, about 1250 BCE, the late Bronze Age, and the Bible justifies their occupation by identifying Canaan as a promised land, the land that God promised to the Israelites. Uh, and then by the 10th century, under the leadership of King David, the Israelites were finally able to break the Philistine power at the same time mm-hmm. to vanquish the native Canaanites, taking the city of Jerusalem. So that's when that happened, that's when Canaan became the land of Israel, which I did not realize that Canaan is Israel. I actually didn't know that. I, I have crazy. Yeah. thought of them as being like adjacent, but again, being mm-hmm. challenged by looking at maps. That was, that was a hard, <laughs> that was a hard understanding. <laughs> so I also looked up what, what do we know about the Canaanite religion? Because God wanted to destroy the Canaanites because they were so evil. So what was going on? And you mentioned child sacrifice. And most of what we know about the Canaanite religion was discussed, was derived from a series of tablets that were discovered at Ras Shamra, which is on the northern coast of Syria. So they had a principal god who was El, but they had pages of gods that they worshipped. So another very popular god for them was Baal. And other deities were Reshep, which was the lord of plague in the netherworld, and Kothar, the divine craftsman, Asherah, the consort of El, and Ashtarte, the goddess of fertility. Those are kind of the big names. And Archaeological investigations have found remains of donkeys as well as some sheep and goats in the early Bronze Age in layers as they're digging, which were imported from Egypt in order to be sacrificed. So animal sacrifice was very common in all religions in this area in the Middle East. Obviously, the Israelites also practiced animal sacrifice instead of the Canaanites. The archaeologists discovered one of these sacrificed animals, a complete donkey. He was found beneath the foundations of a building. And so there's speculation that this means that they would sacrifice an animal before building a house or a residence to kind of, I guess, bless it or bring good luck or that sort of thing. From the Bible, it lists things like worship of demonic idols, taboo sexual acts. There is evidence of child sacrifice in the area around the Canaanites, but there's no extra biblical evidence that they themselves practice child sacrifice. Though, Interesting. I believe this is a little bit of a weak argument in saying, well, we don't know exactly. It's like, yeah, we have evidence of everybody around them was practicing this. And then the Bible says that they were. And again, this is like, I guess if you just disregard the Bible, which I don't think is is valid as a historical document. And so I think, well, that's pretty compelling. So I'm, I believe they were sacrificing children. We also know that they had temple prostitutes, both male and female, where the sexual act was part of their worship. That's what was probably going on in Canaan, and it was very important to God that the Israelites did not adopt those practices. Hmm. So the answer is to destroy them. <laughs> you know, I wonder. Like, does that mean Ooh. right? Does that mean that we destroy them, or just or like break down their government, institution, religion? So we just we you know knock down the Ashtoreth poles. They destroy the temples. They stop the child sacrifice. Do you destroy those things? Because, I mean, the Bible is very specific about that, you know, breaking down the idols, destroying them, stopping those practices. Yes, we do see that. 
definitely yeah elsewhere it's kind of what i i wonder is that is that what god really wanted to be destroyed is those practices which were harming the canaanites as well although i have heard it said you know god wanted them to destroy the people because there was no way the israelites would not be influenced by them i've heard that preached mm. and it kind of it makes me want to take a second look at it because i feel like that is so hmm that's kind of a damaging <laughs> principle that has continued into our modern understanding of christianity mm -hmm. that if something seems tempting to you to assign blame to it and get rid of it right and i guess this kind of feels like almost a bizarre kind of reiteration of purity culture and yeah you know what i mean so i don't know i'm getting into all sorts of subjects here but i i don't know it just it's a tough one this is a tough one yeah to look at yeah i i don't see to me i don't see the difference like i can say god is saying destroy those bad things so the culture where it's okay to sacrifice your children and prostitute yourself as part of an act of worship or do things with demons, that sort of demon worship. Well, those things should be utterly destroyed, destroy all the systems, break it all down because just organized religion. There's a lot that goes into that, that machine. There's a lot of, there are a lot of cogs and a lot of wheels. So I can see like where that needs to be utterly destroyed but does that mean all of the people? No, I don't, I don't think that necessarily follows that that had to be part of it, especially when you look at the fact that like the Israelites never did, like they never succeeded. They were always Canaanites even, but there are things that say yeah. well, they got rid of all the, the idols out of all the land, like throughout Israel's history, like this King was good and he destroyed all the idols. So, it probably didn't mean literally every single idol, but that sort of thing they kept pushing back against. And so I just kind of wonder if those things needed to be destroyed, those systems needed to be destroyed. People mm. definitely died yeah. <laughs> for sure. I'm not saying that they didn't, but I wonder how much of that, like you yeah. were saying like, well, was this like a battlefield? Was it more so that this was mm. like an area? It wasn't every single city, but it was more like a battle outpost or, things that were happening, mm -hmm. maybe it was more like that. I don't know. Yeah. That's going to be the theme of the, the season. The whole theme of the season, I think what we can just say is <laughs> we don't know. I think what we can do is yeah. present theories and talk about what we think. And it, we hope it sparks conversation. Mm -hmm. and, yes. Yeah. And give some people some more tools in their toolbox when unpacking these passages. You know, your first season was so much about deconstruction, and this is too, in a sense. But there are so, like you said, like you heard it preached this way that the Canaanites were evil, and yeah. it, the the Israelites could not be influenced, and therefore they had to be destroyed down to every last man, woman, and child. Well, there are, I think, very reasonable ways you can interpret that. That doesn't it doesn't have to be that way. I think it probably wasn't. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of what I'm what I'm hoping we can do throughout this season, just to give options. Yes, and to give some some more pieces of the puzzle because our English translations <laughs> really tell mm -hmm. so little of the story in a mm -hmm. lot of cases, you know. So, Jenny, thank you so much for the work you did, and I'm I'm excited to hear what our listeners have to say about this. Yes, definitely.
If this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.